Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 20, verse 19 through 31. John chapter 20, verse 19 through 31. It can be found in your pew Bibles on page 1,686. 1,686. Before we read God's word, will you pray with me that he would bless it. Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word. May you enlighten us by the spirit of Christ to see Christ in all his glory, all his grace, all his mercy, and to see our salvation and what he has done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 20, verse 19 through 31. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's the reading of God's word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Our day and age is often called the scientific age, the empirical age, the age that must see, touch, study, theorize, then prove. Of course, they're Strangely inconsistent on that conviction of being based in science. Those who are so concerned with being scientifically accurate think a a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man. Whatever you decide or choose. Those who are so concerned with being scientifically accurate don't think that a fetus is a living human being. 
just a clump of sounds. The list could go on, but it's still the reality. The reality is we like to to prove something with our own eyes. We like to prove something with scientific data, fact. Of course, everyone believes the theory of evolution as if it is fact when it's called a theory. But we see a little bit of that, don't we, in, in Thomas here. That same spirit, that same conviction of wanting to see things with our own eyes and prove them that it's real by touching it, right? Well, the Christian life is, is very much the opposite. Anselm, the great church father, said this famous quote, I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but rather I believe in order that I may understand. It's backwards, isn't it? It's even backwards to many of our modern philosophies of apologetics. If we can prove without a doubt that, that the resurrection happened because of these data points and these facts, then someone would obviously have to believe. If we can prove the accuracy of the Bible in accordance and correlation with all other historical documents like it, then they would have to believe. It's called evidential apologetics. Show them the evidence. But according to Anselm, the Christian life says this. It does not say, show me the evidence, and then I will choose whether I want to believe or not. It says, I must believe before I can even understand. I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but rather I believe in order that I may understand. And that's why this morning our theme is look upon Christ with the eyes of faith and have life in his name. If we look upon Christ with the eyes of faith, we will have Life in his name. The first point we're going to look at is the transition that the disciples have from fear to faith. And then, of course, Thomas's transition from suspicion to sight. And then finally, John's own description of the reason why he wrote the Gospel of John. And that is that it was written to believe. So let's look at that first point, fear to faith. Verse 19 through 23. If you look at the beginning of verse 19, you'll see on the evening of that first day of the week, this is John's way of saying this is the Sunday after that first Easter Sunday. Or it's the same Easter Sunday, excuse me. That same Easter Sunday of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews... The doors are locked. These men are still afraid. Their rabbi has just been murdered. They at this point have heard the news of the resurrection from Mary. But according to Luke's gospel, also the two disciples on the road to Emmaus have seen him. And we hear that Jesus has also appeared to Peter. But they're here behind locked doors because they're thinking, we're next. 
They're going to come get us. They're going to make us come before them, and we're going to be crucified. Behind locked doors, buzzing with excitement, what exactly is going on? Wondering what could possibly happen next. With the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. The ten disciples, minus Thomas and Judas Iscariot, are here in this room, and we're told that Jesus came and stood among them or appeared in their midst. And we're told that detail about the doors being locked because we're being, uh, we're being told that this was a miraculous appearance. And he greets them with a traditional Hebrew greeting, one that still happens today in Israel, Israel, Shalom Aleichem. Peace be with you. It's a very common greeting, but it also brings us back to when Jesus said, My peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give. Right? Not only do the locked doors express to us the fearful state of the disciples in relation to the Jews, the Jewish leaders, but it also reveals to us the miraculous nature of Christ's appearance. Locked doors, he peers among them. And this is not to to say that Christ is somehow uh, immaterial or spiritual, that he is a ghost or a phantom, but that there is some difference with his resurrected body that allows him the ability to appear wherever he desires to appear. And he gives them a blessing of peace. And it dispels some of the fears they were experiencing. It really is true. Jesus is alive. Here on this first Lord's Day, the foundation for the future of the New Testament church is being formed. You could say this is the first council of Christ's church. In verse 20, he says, we read, after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord Now make no mistake that if you were in a locked room and someone miraculously appeared among you, it would be a jolting experience. One of my favorite things to do with my kids is when I hear them coming up the stairs or around the corner, jumping out and going, ah! It's just fun to scare people. And here Jesus is appearing among them and it could have been Unnerving. And this is why he says, peace be with you. And then he shows him his hands, his feet, his side. You see, Luke tells us in his gospel that when Jesus appeared, the disciples were, quote, terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. But Jesus here shows the disciples something very important about our Savior. Is that he is a real person, a human being. Flesh and blood, his hands, his side, he shows them his wounds, the battle scars he has earned in accomplishing the redemption of us, his people. And this tells us something important. It tells us that even though Christ's resurrection body 
can somehow, in a way that we don't entirely understand, miraculously appear and disappear. It can, it can appear in locked rooms without any of the doors being open or anybody sneaking in through the windows if they had windows back then or whatever it may be. Nonetheless... Christ is still recognizable and not so different that it does not contain his body, does not contain the markers that allow him to be identified. There he is, Jesus, with scars. His wounds also express that he's not a ghost, not an apparition. He really is there among them, and he really is alive. This is the evidence of both Christ's death and resurrection engraved on his glorified body. Now, I've asked my seminary professors, I think, a very intriguing question. And I know it's a good question because they couldn't really give me an answer. And that's when you know you got a good question. And that is, if Jesus has representations of the suffering that he experienced upon his body in this world. Does that mean that our resurrection bodies will also bear the scars that we went through in our lives that show and express our suffering and show that they are truly beautiful? And the answer I got was, well, um, you know, maybe it's unique to Jesus that he, um, he has these markers because he is the Savior and, and these markers represent the, the, uh, the suffering that he experienced for our salvation. But I do think that it is interesting to ponder that the resurrection body of Jesus Christ, the perfect glorified body of Jesus Christ, bears the scars and reminders of the cross that he endured for our sins. Maybe that would help us learn a lesson. A lesson that I think is important, and that is that the suffering we experience in this world, the suffering that we endure, the suffering that we go through, as Paul says, storing up for us a weight of glory that cannot even be expressed. It's very simple if you think of it in this way. The suffering that we experience in this life for the sake of Christ and the things that teach us to, get, to let go of the world and to cling to our Savior that help us understand the love and grace and mercy of God and the righteousness and justice of, of God, those things are not pointless. They are meaningful. And the easiest way to know that that is true is that Jesus has scars in his glorified, perfected body. And of course, we're told 
that when Jesus showed his hands and his side, identifying himself as truly Jesus of Nazareth, their friend, their rabbi, their Messiah, their Savior, the disciples were overjoyed. And although they did not know in this moment the true significance of what these things meant, they were happy to have a living Jesus. They were happy to be reunited with their friend. Later they would come to know that these wounds would be the wounds that healed them. Later they would come to know what Hutchison said when he said this, Whatever sight believers get of Christ, yet it is still needful to look upon him as pierced by their sins, that this may season their other exercise with useful tenderness and sorrow. For this further may be pointed at in his showing them his hands and his side, that he would keep them in mind, even in his exaltation, how he had been pierced for their sakes. And lastly, Jesus puts his disciples on mission. In verse 21 through 23, he says, Peace be with you again, the threefold peace. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This has been an often confusing portion of Scripture because is it true that the disciples received the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathed on them in John? Is it true that the disciples received the Spirit in some sense in the end of Luke? Or is it true that the disciples received the Spirit at Pentecost where we typically think of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? How do we correlate these things? How do we understand these things? And uh, we'll talk about that. But the first thing that we need to understand is what it means that Jesus is putting them on mission. And these are the four things that Keddy describes in his commentary. The character of the mission, the authority of the mission, the power of the mission, and the task of the mission. Okay? So the character of the mission starts with that phrase that Jesus says to him, again, peace be with you. This is a blessing and a directing of the mission of God. It's a mission to be carried out by those who have peace with God, who offer the same peace to others. And this is why often Paul's letters begin with grace and peace. And this is why what we're told of in Romans chapter 4 is that it is great. The gospel means to have peace with God. That's the character of the mission. It's a mission of those who have peace with God through Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, going out and offering that peace to others. But what's the authority of the mission? As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The mission of the church is a continued extension of the sending of the Son by the Father. This is not Jesus necessarily passing the baton as much as it is Him expressing that the church will continue His work by His Spirit and that church work, even though done in the absence of the physical presence of Jesus, is of the same nature. And that's why I have started a petition that I'd like you to sign to change the book of Acts Name from Acts of the Apostles to Acts of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Because that's really what's going on in the book of Acts. 
as the Spirit of Christ working through the apostles to continue the work and mission that Christ's Father sent him to do. I don't really have a petition. This is a commission to the whole church, the apostles acting as representatives. The authority of the mission is from God himself. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That's the authority of the mission. What's the power of the mission? He breathed on them. and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now the way I want to understand this is John's symbolic expression of the importance of of Pentecost and its association with the resurrection of Christ. John, as an apostle, as one who a flaming tongue of fire came down upon at Pentecost, it is silly to think that he does not understand the significance of that day. It is silly for us to think that he does not understand that the Holy Spirit was not poured out until Pentecost. Yet nonetheless, when he sat down to write his gospel narrative... He knew that it would be important to include an aspect or characteristic or foreshadowing of that very important Holy Spirit pouring out Pentecost moment. And so how does he do this? He helps us see that there was a moment in which Jesus, upon his resurrection, points to the reality of the coming Holy Spirit that he had already promised time and time again to the disciples the comforter, the advocate, the helper I am sending to you. He will convict. He will judge. He will bring grace. He will lead you. He will guide you. He will comfort you. So this is pointing forward to Acts 2 and the pouring of the out of the Holy Spirit. It anticipates it. Ketty says, this private giving of the Spirit is an earnest of the later public unveiling of the endowment of the Spirit on the church. This alone expresses that the power which must be relied upon for the mission is not their own, the disciples' own power. It's not our own power. We must rely wholly upon the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. The church, if she desires to be effective in the mission given to her by Jesus Christ, must be a church filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. What's the task that we are given. Verse 23, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is simply an echo of what we read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, following the confession of Peter, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and in chapter 18, verse 18, when Christ is describing for us the pattern that church discipline should take. There it talks about the keys of the kingdom. I give you the keys of the kingdom. What is said here does not mean that God exists to confirm whatever arbitrarily or bureaucratically we decide as a church. We are called to this mission in the name of Christ and must seek to do all according to God's revealed will as guided by the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. So whenever somebody tells you that a 51% vote at council or at classes or at synod is the voice of the Holy Spirit, that's not what's being said here. Because as Martin Luther 
said, councils can err, popes can err. More importantly, this does not mean that whoever we say is forgiven is forgiven and whoever we say is not forgiven is not forgiven. Because trust me, sometimes I wake up and I'm out of coffee and you don't want me to have that power. Just ask my wife or my kids. Rather, when it says, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Is that as we go out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, offering forgiveness of sins for any who turn and believe in him and his completed and perfect work, those who believe are forgiven and those who don't believe are not forgiven. That's why the Heidelberg Catechism tells us that one of the keys of the kingdom is the preaching of the gospel. It describes the natural dividing effect of the preaching of the gospel. God is in control of this. Not us. Not the Pope. Not the Cardinals. Not even the pastors. Our mission is to carry the message faithfully. God does the rest. But we have this moment here with Thomas, don't we? Suspicion to sight. We give him a bad name, don't we? We call him Doubting Thomas. He gets called that all the way down through history. It's been a week. A week has passed. It's the next Sunday. And uh, Thomas missed out on Jesus' earlier appearance. Now, I tell you what, that is a, a bummer thing, isn't it? You decide, now nah, I got something else I got to do that day. And then all your friends come and tell you, listen, Jesus appeared, and we got to hang out with him. And you're like, nah. Maybe he actually believes him. He's just jealous, so he doesn't want to give on, you know? It's a story that's hard to believe. I mean, if you weren't there and at a party and somebody came to you and said, listen, Elvis came, and you're not going to believe it, he's still alive. I know you, you read that article in the National Enquirer and all those stories online about him being alive, and you've seen pictures of him over in, over in uh, England or wherever it is that he's hiding out. But we were at a party, and he literally showed up. I get it, Elvis and Jesus are not the same, but you get the point, right? The truth is, he would not believe it until he saw it for himself. And if yes, of course, he should have believed the other disciples' testimonies, but rather than that, he demanded the same evidence which had been awarded to them. He would see Jesus with his own eyes, examine his wounds to confirm his identity. And this is where we bring up that question of, Believing in order to understand or seeking understanding in order to believe. For Thomas, seeing is believing. Verse 26a, it says, A week later his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. 
Disciples are gathered, the door is locked, and that tells us something. That tells us that in a very real sense, maybe they feel a little bit more confident, but not confident enough to get outside. Not confident enough to leave the door unlocked. Christ, again, appears among them. But this time, Thomas is present. And Jesus' interaction with him takes center stage. He says again, receive the peace of God. Peace be with you. He comes in peace, underscoring the gracious purpose of his appearance. He's not there to condemn Thomas for not believing. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Here is Christ in all his grace giving Thomas what he demanded. He did not need to appear to Thomas. He did not need to offer his wounds for inspection, yet he does. He stoops down. He obliges him. He shows him that he is real. And Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God. A confession that goes beyond what the wounds of Christ can prove. He confesses faith in the divine Messiah. This is where the gospel of John comes full circle. The word who became flesh, who was with God and who was God, who is God, the word is now confessed to be God by Thomas. Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. See that it is me. One of my favorite songs of all time is a song called Jesus Christ by the band Brand New. It's not a Christian band, but it's a meaningful song. An example of common grace, if you wish. And one of the lines in that song that always gets me is the song is about a man doubting his faith, doubting his conviction, doubting what's going to happen to him. When he dies, and he says, um, when I get to the gates, will Thomas ask to see my hands? I think what he's getting after there is, is Thomas going to be there to ask me if I have lived the crucified life? If I have lived for Christ? If I show the marks of being Christian. Here, Jesus stoops down and he gives Thomas what he wanted in his weakness. And I think not a perfect comparison, but a great comparison for us today is when we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we're given taste, smell, for our weakness, to strengthen us in our faith, to extend grace to us. Stop doubting and believe.
This is our gracious Savior. But lest all those who read John's gospel begin to think that they've missed out on the greater blessing of seeing the risen Jesus. And maybe many of us would say, if only we could see him, then our, our faith would be so much stronger, our blessing so much richer. If we could only have seen the risen Jesus like Thomas did, like Peter did, like John did. You know what? I'll even take it the way Paul got it. Get knocked off your horse as you're going to kill some Christians. I'll take that. But no, here we are, the more lowly Christians. We didn't get to see the risen Jesus like Thomas or Peter or John or the other disciples or even 500 others, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We're not numbered among them. Unless we think that way, Jesus says, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, it is true that Thomas was blessed because he was Jesus. He saw Jesus in the flesh and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And as the apostle Peter would later write to a group of Christians who became converted through the preaching of the apostles in their mission, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. We are blessed because we look upon Jesus with the eyes of faith and have life in his name. Our last point this morning is written to believe. Verse 30 and 31 close this section out. John tells us Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The first thing that we learn from this phrase is that we have a Savior who acts in history. The first part of verse 30, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. These are things that he did as he lived in this world. Jesus is a Savior. Our God is a God who acts in history. This is not a fictitious narrative. This is real. We also have a Savior whose word is sufficient. John says they aren't recorded in this book. See, some people misunderstand the nature of the Bible. They think that the Bible must describe every life detail of Jesus down to the very minute, second. And if something is missing from it, therefore it must be false or it's insufficient. What John is telling us here is that if he chose to write everything that he could have written about Jesus, the skies could not hold the scrolls. 
that would be needed to write that. So what John did was he, guided by the Holy Spirit, picked those things which he deemed important and sufficient for giving us what we need to reveal to us who God is, who we are, and how we are to live for him. We have a Savior to believe in and trust, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so John says, I didn't write everything, but I wrote enough that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. But we also have a Messiah, a Savior, who gives eternal life, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so maybe none of us today are like Thomas, maybe none of us today have gotten sucked into understanding our culture and our society in a scientific, empirical, need to see, touch, in order to believe kind of way. But have we really understood the nature of faith? That believing is understanding. I think Anselm was on to something here when he says, I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but rather I believe in order that I may understand. And John, as he wrote his gospel, told us exactly the reason for his writing. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And my conviction to all of us is that if we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and have, by believing have life in his name and then read the Gospel of John, it will open up to us a world of understanding. So look upon Christ with the eyes of faith. Look upon him not as Thomas did, not as Peter or John did. Look upon him by believing. Believing that he came, that he lived, that he died, that he was raised from the dead. when you believe, you have life in his name. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your grace in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given a calling and a mission to your church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. May we preach your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you show your grace even to those who doubt, such as Thomas. For many of us, many of us, if we are honest with ourselves, doubt 
as well. But you have reached down to us and given us your grace by giving us your word, by giving us sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we praise you, Lord, that you have revealed to us Jesus Christ, your Son, the promised Messiah, and the one who died on the cross for our sins and was raised three days later, that we may believe in him and have life in his name. Help us, Lord, to look upon Christ, our Savior, with the eyes of faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.